So here, here is a funny thing. Um, so like the mask mandates come off, everything seems to be getting better. And you know what happens? I catch a cold. A literal cold. You didn't think those existed anymore, but they do. I know this. And I have had a horrible time this week taking my Dayquil and my Nyquil and my... Uh, I even... Look, I'm not that doped up this morning yet. So I should be able to focus where we're going. But trying to not, you know, have it run down my face. The other thing that is like, oh, it's like the, just the double whammy of what's happening. Next week, time change. Time change. You're like, what? I know. You're going to lose an hour of sleep. I know. I know. I'm, I, look, I am sorry. I am not in charge of the government. I can't fix that for you. But... There you go. Time change next week. Lose hours of sleep. You're going to set them forward. Set them forward. Which means I'll sleep in till like 6.30 next week. I got this thing. You don't know this, but the older you get, the earlier you wake up. And it's not fun. Hey, if you are new to Element, welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on the inside on the left, you're going to get a half-sheet summary of what we will talk about today. On the right-hand side, you're going to get some questions that you can talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about. On the back side, you're going to get the verses we're going to cover. And on the bottom there, there's a place for notes. And if you have a smart device... You can download this app. It is called Uversion. Did I slow down? Am I slowing it down? <laughs> download Uversion. Just says Bible. Click on More and then Events. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. Although, in my perfect world, you'd all have hard copies of the Bible because you've got to learn how to flip it. Because one day there's going to be a solar flare, and it's all going to go away. You're going to be like, how do I open this Bible? <laughs> and we want you to know how to do that. That's why they're in the seat backs in front of you. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is James chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you in ways that we see your image in others and that we would love those around us in ways that we would speak the good news of who you are, but also live that out in our lives. And through all of that, you would get the glory in what we do. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So as promised, we are finally in James chapter 2. Yes. And also, as promised, we're going to go much faster through the rest of the book. Uh, we spent eight weeks in chapter one, and we're going to spend just a couple more than that in the rest of the entire book. We're going to go halfway through chapter two today, actually. Uh, as we begin, I'm going to tell you today's message may not be fun for all of you, though messages aren't necessarily supposed to be fun. But we're going to look at this idea in a roundabout way of, do we truly belong to Christ? That's going to be the question. I'm not going to ask you to judge each other. There's too much of that going on already. But we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Have we trusted Christ with our life? And the way that many times we can see that is how our lives are then lived out. And this is not a message about morality. It's not legalism. But when Jesus is Lord of our lives and we start to walk with him, there are th certain things 
that change in how we actually live out our lives. Uh, Matt Chandler, when he was talking about the book of James, he says it's kind of ironic because the people in the book of James, they, they kept being hauled in front of courts, and yet these people still wanted to snuggle up next to the people around them that were actually trying to persecute them. And this is what he says, this church so wants to be seen as cool and so wants to be seen as in and so wants to be accepted that they sell out their brother and snuggle up to the world who belittles them, who mocks them, who attacks them and drags them into court. The incessant need we have to be seen as cool and relevant must die. And it must die. I, I know that you probably have people around you and you don't want them to think of you as one of those stuffy Christians. So maybe sometimes you act a little different than maybe God would call you to. So maybe they'll think that you're cool, but that must die in us. Sometimes in our culture, we'll start to say certain things that sound very culturally relevant to the point, though, that our faith starts to look nothing like biblical faith. And don't, do not mistake what I'm saying. I think in real Christianity, being a Christian always comes before doing the being of who we are. God rescues and saves us through the, through the gospel, always comes before living out our lives. The being comes before doing, but doing does actually start to happen in our lives. And when we look at a biblical narrative, we see that in Jesus, we are a people who are radically fallen and yet infinitely exalted. And the Bible will tell us that we are sinful, that we have run from God, that we have rebelled against Him, and nothing less than the Son of God, His death, could ever save us. And that is the meaning. If you look through the Old Testament and you see all these sacrifices, they are all pointing to what Jesus would come and do in the gospel to pay for what we've done. There is a debt that we have incurred because of our sin before God. And so we are fallen, and there is no way we could ever pay for that ourselves by doing or by trying. But because the Son of God comes to die for us, He does everything that we needed to repay that debt so we can then be in relationship with God again. He has fulfilled all of the requirements, and now we get to be exalted because of what He has done. When we trust in what He has done for us, that provision comes into our lives. And so we are now accepted, and we are welcomed, and we are adopted by God Himself, and we get to be children of the great King of all of creation. And people who have a horrible self-esteem, and people who have a self-esteem that just thinks they're the greatest thing in the world, all need to come back to that understanding that we are saved by the grace of Christ alone because that will change how we see our lives and it will then change how we live our lives. We are radically fallen but infinitely exalted. So open your Bibles to the book of James chapter 1. I know, go in chapter 2, but we've got to backtrack just a tiny bit before we get there. It's on page 654 if you have an element Bible. And James has been saying that the trials we go through and the Word of God is like a mirror that gets held up to our lives so we can see ourselves, so we can see if we truly trust and live out what we say we believe. Because if we're not living for Christ, then we've forgotten all that He has said and all that He has done. Again, do we truly belong to Him? And so that starts in our hearts, that moves out into our lives, then out into how we live in the world. It's this outward progressive movement to go out into the world to live as God calls us to live in the world. It never stays just in here. It must always go out. And then it goes out, that's going to bring glory to God. And this is right before chapter 2, why he says, first off, we got to bridle our tongues. And then in James 1.27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And he will now essentially take the rest of the book and 
talk about those three things, our words, our hands, and our hearts. He will talk about that the entire rest of the book. And this is why we understand that the scriptures and what God teaches, that is for liberals and conservatives. Because liberals come along and they will say, well, what you do with your money and your power, that is so important and how you care about other people. But really what you do in your own personal life, sexually or whatever, that doesn't really matter. And so they only get part of it right, the first part in case you were wondering. But conservatives go the other way, right? And the conservatives are all morality. Oh, your personal morality, that's what matters. But you know, if you spent a lot of time and effort making your money and your power, what you do with that doesn't matter. So conservatives get half of it right. The first half, in case you were wondering, okay? But James says that they are both important. We must be a people who live lives of integrity and lives of compassion. That we are a people who understand justice, but also God's ultimate justice. The Apostle Paul says, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. And Jesus says, every part of our lives, when he saves us, we surrender to him, they all belong to him. And we will only know true freedom and understand the real grace of God when we start to live in what Paul and James both call the law of liberty or the royal law. That is the law of freedom, the law of love. And James will tell us, yes, you're supposed to live a certain way. There are certain things that we do in our lives, but we do it because of who we are in Christ. He doesn't tell us what to do without showing us how we actually do it, how we have the power to do that. The power to do it comes from the relationship we have with Christ. So go to James chapter 2. We're going to talk about our attitudes with our hands and our hearts and our lips and see if we truly trusted Jesus in this. We'll see how we go. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to walk through it, then we'll talk about it. It says, brother, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? thoughts. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and, and they actually were, and the ones who drag you into court? And yes, they did that. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, this is interesting because this is something that people in our world, no matter what political persuasion, we all agree with what James says here. Show no partiality. Show no favoritism. We go, yes, that's true. James is writing to a particular church in a particular place in a particular time, but what he says happens is what always happens. We tend to look at one type of people and elevate them over another type of people. Everybody does it. We claim we don't. We claim it's those other people who do it, but never us, but everybody does it. And so James then starts going back to what Jesus says. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Now, why is that? Because favoritism fails to love your neighbor. 
Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do, if you don't commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I'm going to explain kind of what all that means, but this kind of goes into what we talked about last week, what true religion versus false moralistic religion. Uh, Tim Keller writes this, a merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. When we think we're doing everything on our own, we're doing so well, look at my morality, we will have contempt for others who do not live up to our morality. This is why we keep coming back to understanding that we are saved by the grace of God alone. And those of us who understand that begin to see the world differently. We are not perfect, but there is progress. And sometimes that is slow in our lives as God does his work in us. But where there is no progress at all, we should start asking some questions but between us and others and us and God. Now, Matt Chandler in talking about these verses actually breaks it out in a way I like. I'm not going to follow kind of what he talks about, but I like how he does this. He calls this the what, the why, and the better way. And that's what I'm going to kind of run with you if you want three-point sermon. The what, the why, the better way. What is the what in this? The what is don't show partiality. Don't show favoritism. That's the what that's there. James says a truth we deny, and that is that we will go out and we will show favoritism by people to, because of their outward appearance. That's what we do. Now, depending on where you're from and the things that you like, that will differ depending on place to place. But we all do it. Even today, social justice movements that are out there, they do that based upon sexual preference or skin tone. They show favoritism based upon those things. How do they show it in what James is talking about? He says, if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. I know this is element. So if that happened, this got to be like, I'm in the wrong place, right? <laughs> I get it. I get it. But this is literally in the Greek, a gold-fingered man. It sounds like a James Bond villain, the gold finger. That's, but that's what it literally translates as. We are not to be those who treat other people differently based on their skin tone or weight or clothing or attractiveness or the gold rings on their fingers. And if we do, it is discrimination, period. And in the church should be the one place in the entire world that there isn't discrimination. But again, everybody on earth does it. We all have a standard of attractiveness. I do and you do. And studies show we will let attractive people People get away with more than non-attractive people. Like my standard of beauty is my wife. And so it's like 50-year-old woman, don't tell I told you how old she was. And she got dark hair, a little bit of gray in it. She is very black and white. It is like, this is how the world goes. And I will tell you, I will give her favoritism over you any day. I told you if there is a bomb and either she dies or everybody else in the world dies, you kiss your butt goodbye because you're going to die because I am going to save her every time. I have favoritism. I have favoritism. Do you know that most rock stars do not pay for their guitars or amps? That's why they break them. It's like, it's like no Pete Townsend, don't put that guitar through the amp. It's like, ah, because they get them for free because they get favoritism. You know, uh, most famous people, when they go to restaurants, they get a table right away, and many times they get their meals comped. Oh, take a picture with me. Oh, it's so great. See, that's why they're rich, because they don't have to pay for the things that we have to pay for. But everybody does it. You will have something that you will let people get away with more if you find them attractive. The gold-fingered person, they show up. 
they are making a display of the wealth that they wear. But the less affluent person also shows who they are by what they wear. Got a good example of this. A few years ago, I was doing this wedding, and one of the groomsmen didn't really appreciate that there was a Christian minister during the wedding because he was an atheist, and he was mad at the groom for having me do it. So afterwards, I'm, I'm standing at the buffet table, and if you know me, I don't like any food, so I'm really just browsing the buffet table trying to find something. So I'm standing, and he walks up to me, and he goes, he goes, did you get that suit off a rack? Now, you got to understand, if you know me, that is a badge of honor. It, it is like... Of course I did. Buy one, get one, free men's warehouse. Yes, I did. I buy all my clothes on the clearance rack. You can tell, but I'm very excited about that. He was, he was very downcast because he's trying to get under my skin by kind of being like, oh, he probably would have shown me more respect if I had the suit made. And I only wear suits at weddings and funerals and the occasional Christmas Eve if I'm really excited about it. Uh, but... <laughs> But I was like, that's my badge of honor. Everything on the clearance rack, that's me. And if I would, again, had a nice suit that I paid a lot of money for, he'd probably been like, oh, I would have gotten up in his estimation. But then I actually went down. See, that's the thing. What is the what? Don't show favoritism. And try and look at how we do it. And in the Greek, it's actually plural. It is favoritisms because we do it in a multitude of different ways. And God invites us to a different way, which is the why. So the what is don't show favoritism and the why. So why don't you do that? Well, the why is a little more complex. And we could really sometimes maybe just go back and be like the fundamentalist because God said so. It's a lot easier than trying to explain it. Like if you have kids and your kids are always like, why, why, why? Like, because I said so. Okay, just get to the end of it. I had these kids at our house one time and they're swimming in the pool for a couple hours, and then my wife was going to come home for work, and I'm like, okay, you guys need to get out of the pool. Why? And I could have said, because I said so, but I didn't, and I tried to explain it, and I said, because my wife's going to be home in a little bit, and I'd like to make sure the house is clean when she gets home, so she's happy about it, and she's like, oh, this is great, the house is clean, and when because if she's off, then I'm off, and then nobody's happy, and they're like, but why? And I finally said, because I said so, get out of the pool. <laughs> and then I and it's kind of funny, a couple years later, it comes back to me that they thought I said I'm afraid of my wife, and that's why they need to go. <laughs> and that's not why. I just love her, and I want her to be happy, okay? So what's the why? James doesn't just say, because I said so. This is what James says, verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's why you don't do it. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? And we talked about that actually in, in week three. So the why of why we don't show favoritism is this. We dishonor God and reveal we don't truly understand the gospel when we do it. That's why we don't do it. Well, let me show you what the gospel is not. When I was growing up, we didn't have cell phones and iPads. We had video games, but it's like Pong. You know, it wasn't like we have today or anything like that. And so even organized sports, we didn't have like we do today. And what, what we would do then is we go into the street with some friends and we'd take spray paint and we would spray paint a baseball diamond in the street. And then we would get friends together around the neighborhood and we would break up into teams. You know, the captains were usually the best players, so like my brother and somebody else. And then they'd kind of choose the teams out. And the last two picked were usually like the handicapable kid and me. And then he got chose first because that was horrible. But, but you know, that's not the gospel. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not captains finding the best point to get. That is not how God works. If God was after the best, he would never pick any of us. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. I know we all think we're so much better than we are, but no one is ever saved because of our majesty. No one's ever saved because of our glory. The most loving thing I can tell you is that we are not great. We are not awesome, but God is. 
And when we live in his grace, we get to see his awesomeness because we are radically fallen, but infinitely exalted. And the reality that God doesn't need us on his team to win the game because he has already won the game. And so often though, we think he does. And so we puff ourselves up in all of these ways. And I have been in many situations in my life with people who thought they were very religious. And it usually drives me crazy because they think they are holier or better than others. I was even going went to this uh, pastor's meeting for a little bit with some other people. And I couldn't stand how they talked about people. And I, I was like, this is terrible. I, I, and so I leave thinking I'm better than them because I'm not going to. And I just did the same thing that they were doing. So it's a whole cycle. It just keeps going around and around. But I can very easily in my mind start to think that if more Christians were like me, well, the world would be a better place. But then where are my eyes? On me. Oh, if they're like me, oh, that's what I want. What the world needs is more of me. No, what the world needs more of is Jesus. It needs us to live our faith in the world in a way that makes sense of who he is. It's not that God is choosing his team trying to find the people who will help him win because he has already won. Uh, that Tim Keller quote I gave you earlier comes from a book called The Gospel in Life. I actually put it in your notes. And he says, A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on. And he says, I am only where I am by the sheer and unmerited mercy of God. That is the language of a Christian's heart. That is the language of a Christian's heart. See, favoritism makes us want to be people who in a church be like, oh, yeah, I'll take that person and that person and that person and that person, and I'll make my team. No, no, we understand the gospel is what enables us to see all people as equals without favoritism. And do you want to see if you have understood the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the salvation of God? You look at those you care for. Who are you concerned about? Who comes to your mind? Who do you want to just write off in your life? And to be blind and unmoved towards the needy is a sign in our hearts that we have failed to understand the gospel message and what it brings. Guys, there are churches in our world today where a majority race will scorn the minority race. And there are churches in our world today where the, the attractive and cool people scorn the unattractive. But there are also churches where the minority scorn the majority. And those who don't see themselves as having a lot, they will scorn people who do have a lot. And you will see where liberals scorn conservatives and, and liberals and, and conservatives scorn liberals. You go back to the 2020 election and Trump and you have like one side scoring the other and then you have the conspiracy theorists scoring the non-conspiracy theorists and vice versa. And this is why James used the word favoritisms. Favoritisms. It's plural. It's all wrong. It's all prejudice. It's all discrimination. How do we stop? How do we stop that? Well, this is the better way of where he goes to. And this is why in James 1, we took so much time to go through that first chapter because every week of that first chapter steers us back to the understanding of the gospel through our trials, through our suffering and the steadfast and the joy and our high position and low position and the, and the words we say and being slow to speak and slow to anger and quick to listen. And now we understand the better way, which is the gospel, that we are not saved because of our greatness. And to demand that someone else meets the criteria of our greatness is anti-gospel. It is outside of how God saves and works and the mercy that we have been shown. You know that there are certain, city, or certain states in the U.S. and even in the world that have adopted very serious anti-favoritism laws? We call them anti-discrimination laws. Um, and I'm not saying they're bad at all. But what I'm telling you is that every place that those are, if you look closely how they are applied, they are all dis done in a discriminatory way because everybody shows favoritism. How they are applied is even done in a favoritistic way. 
What does James say? That's not how we live. We're supposed to understand the gospel first. James 2, verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And that is what James has been pushing towards the entire book so far. What we do flows from who we are, from who we are. James doesn't do the, the Bob Newhart sketch, just stop it, that he doesn't do that. He says why and how we stop, because we understand the gospel and our own salvation. The gospel is that Christ came to save us. He gives his life for us, his righteousness to us as a gift. He takes our sin upon himself. He takes our death. He gives us his life. It is all done in him, not because we are so great, but because he is great. The most accurate rendering of James chapter 2 verse 1 would be this, not with partiality of any sort unless you hold the faith of Jesus Christ who is the glory. Now, in English translations, we try to move words around so they make more sense in a grammatical kind of way to us. But what James is showing there when he writes that is the nuance of that is not focused on the do, it's focused on the be. The do comes out of the be. That could be a song. The do comes out of the be. The do comes out of the be. That's, that's how we live. Got, okay, yeah. Now, he, he could have said, instead of saying the Lord of glory, he could have said our loving Lord Jesus Christ or our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ, but he uses the word glory there, and I think he does it for a reason. Now, the word glory, it means weight or heaviness or significance, but that word glory originally goes back to a root word that meant someone who was weighted down under all of their stuff, all of their things, all of their gold, and all of their jewelry. And that's what gave that person worth. It's what gave that person significance. And so that word glory, and I think that's why he uses it when he first starts talking about the rich man right after that. The glory is how important other people see you, how important you are. So how does God show forth his glory? Because if there is a God, then he would obviously be the ultimate weight because he'd be the ultimate thing in the entire world. Well, when God appeared, it wasn't with gold fingers. How does God appear? It's in the form of Jesus, who was a servant of all. That's how he shows up. And when we are adopted in, when we call ourselves Christians, that's a whole different life because we see Jesus as the glory of God, and it changes us. We are different people because of his weight. And again, I know some people take James's words in a very legalistic way, but this is why James, I think, goes on. And in verse 8, he talks about this royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Uh, here's his argument. You really want to fulfill that royal law to love your neighbor as yourself? You know where you start? With the glory of God. That's where you start. You want to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your strength. You look at his glory. This is not a do. This is an invitation to be a certain type of people. And it's beautiful. Verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. It's like a heart that hasn't trusted God hears the words of favoritism and they look at themselves and say, well, I haven't broken any major laws. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. I'm doing okay. And James says, so what if you don't murder, but you do commit adultery? That's breaking the law. So what if you don't commit murder or adultery, but you show partiality? Well, that's the same thing. It's the same thing. Guys, being an accidental racist doesn't make it any better. 
It doesn't. It doesn't. If you avoid the poor, you are not living in that law of love that God calls us to as a people. It means we're not really understanding the gospel. So what does James say? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And this again, he's taking us right back to where he's been talking about the entire time. The word of God implanted in us what the Word of God brings about, where we started. We're not just supposed to be hearing about the law of liberty. Yeah, the law of freedom is so great. We're supposed to be living it out. You know, being leads to doing, so speak and so act. When we're not living this out, that should be a red light for us. And we should take that to God himself and say, God, I'm not living this out. Please change me. Help me to see clearly. And I do want to be clear. It doesn't mean that you're lost if you stumble. It means when we fall and we see ourselves not living in the way God calls us to, we ask God's Spirit to show us ourselves with that mirror that James talks about so that we would grow. And when we do that, even in the places where we stumble and fall, that's some objective evidence that we actually understand the gospel because we are going to God with it. When we wrestle with ourselves and our failings and we want to entrust ourselves to Jesus in all these ways that we fail, that can be a gladness and a joy because it's bringing us back to the place where we understand the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ so we can know him better. Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. What does James say? Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And James's sounds very negative. Two things you gotta understand. Number one is this, when Jesus said his, he was talking to Jewish people. He had not died on the cross yet or risen from the grave. When James says what he is saying, he is talking to people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah after he has risen now from the grave. And so James is talking to believers here and he's talking about the understanding of what true faith brings in our lives. James says, faith without mercy towards others, it's not a genuine faith because you haven't understand that you have only been saved by the mercy of God. Like if you run around saying, oh, I have faith, I trust in Jesus, I his forgiveness, all that, yet you refuse to extend that to somebody else, it reveals something is broken inside of you. And I'm not saying you're not saved at that point if you've trusted Christ, but I'm telling you, you don't understand the gospel. And God is calling you back to himself to understand that. And I am not saying you can't struggle because we all do. I'm saying we need to wrestle with these areas in our lives and see what genuine faith actually brings. I am not saying, and James is not saying, you have to be perfect. I'm saying we want to be more like Christ. So what is that better way? That better way is in the midst of all that we do, we remember who and where we were when Christ saved us. We go to that place and remember the state that we were in. Remember how he rescued us. We remember how he ransomed us. We remember God's forgiving grace and mercy extended to us so we would then extend it to others. Guys, we are only saved by the grace and the goodness of God. And this is why we must understand who Jesus is and who we are in him. What is our focus? What is our focus? How do you see the glory of the rich man and his gold fingers versus how do you see the glory of God in Jesus? The better way. Do you want to know about the wisdom of God? You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. Do you want to know about the love of God? You look to Jesus. You want to know about the holiness of God? You look to Jesus. You want to know about the glory of God? You look to Jesus. That's the better way. In Hebrews, uh, the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus is the express image of God's glory. And that means that Jesus doesn't just show us God's glory. What it does is he brings God's glory. Because though he was rich with God's glory, we are told in 2 Corinthians 8 that he becomes poor. And by his poverty, we get to become rich. 
that Jesus dies for our sins. He cleanses our hearts. Psalm 103 tells us that the grass withers and everything will perish, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. The better way is, James says, Christ's glory should affect us in ways that change all that we are. And when we understand His glory, we're not going to be so distracted and drawn away by the temporary glory of people around us. And I think when we understand the glory of Christ, we're going to be happy to sit with people of a lower position because those don't actually exist because we are all of the same position. And we'll talk to those who aren't as cool as we are because that doesn't exist. None of us are cool, okay? None of us, none of us. And we'll talk to people with different walks of life. We understand that before the scriptures tell us what to do, they tell us who we are in Christ. We are new creations in Him. This is what the gospel brings. It brings a change and a difference in us. But it does that when we understand it enough to think about it and live with it and through it every single day. That is why I keep telling you the majority of our worship as a people is not done in this room. It is done outside of these walls. I mean, you're, you're, you're in here depending on how long I ramble for, you know, an hour and a half a week. You live the rest of your lives out there. That is where your worship is on display. That is where we remember the gospel in every step of our lives teaching people the glory and the goodness of who God is. And so we are those who look towards His glory and not people's glory. We look to His glory and not our own weight. We want what, who He is laid upon us so we would then live that out in the world. Now, I'm going to invite the band to come up. Uh, as they do, we're going to invite to communion like we do every week. And a communion is this place and reminder that we come to and lay ourselves bare before Christ. This is why you, you break the cracker that's in there and you, and you drink the, the grape juice. It's a reminder of Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed for us because he is the one who saves us. We do not save ourselves. And if we want to understand the goodness and the grace of God, we take communion and remember the place that we were when God saved us, when we were at the bottom of everything and we said, God, please save me. That's what we remember. God's grace to us in our worst moments because we are radically fallen and yet infinitely exalted because we get to become his children. We get to live that out in the world. And so communion is another place of that remembrance of what he has done to draw us to himself. Uh, if you guys need prayer, grab Sarah out the Welcome Center. She will connect you with one of us. Maybe you are in a place today where it's like, no, I can't believe I'd ever be infinitely exalted. I'm just radically fallen. And you just keep staring at your life going, I am so horrible. Guys, you have to understand what the gospel speaks over your life. When we understand what Christ has done, it changes horrible self-esteem and it changes great self-esteem to be a Christ-centered self-esteem because our esteem is no longer about ourselves. It is about what Christ has done in and through us. And so we trust him. Everything always comes back to the gospel. And if you need prayer, she would love to connect with one of us. Also, if uh, you'd like to give, we, we give every week. Uh, we do not pass a plate at Element. Giving is always a response to what God has done. And so you can give online. There's offering boxes next to all the doors. But our God has been generous with us, so he calls us to be a generous people. And so we give you the opportunity every week. And I encourage you to grab those sermon notes, take those questions, maybe with your family, maybe with your friends, your gospel community, and kind of start to walk through those. Maybe you start to deal with the hard places of of who you let get away with more than other people. You know, I know I give my wife as a, as a funny example, and, and it is true. <laughs> but, but we also do it in very subtle ways in our lives. 
And I think it's good to identify those to understand where we are not living Christ-centered lives and help one another to kind of point that out and begin to live in the love of Christ out there so everybody sees it and knows who he is. Guys, Jesus is good to us. And so often I think we forget that in the midst of our mundane daily lives. This is why we must always go back, remember the gospel and his goodness. Let us be a people who have the words of our mouth, the the thoughts that kind of percolate in through our hearts, be those that come back to always glorify him and lift him up. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take and move us to a place of understanding our own great salvation. And this is something, God, I know we say every week that you would remind us of the gospel. And yet so often we forget the good news of the gospel. And we place ourselves at the center of our life. And every time we do, our life just seems to crumple down around us. Because we do not have the weight to hold ourselves. We have no glory of our own. And so teach us to be those who trust in your glory that has been laid upon us, that we now have a weight. We now get to have a significance because of the gospel that we would come back in remembrance of trusting who you are. And that for those of us today who don't really and fully understand the gospel, you would remind us of a deep conviction of your grace, of your salvation, where we have been radically fallen and yet in you infinitely exalted. And in that humbleness, live out our lives in the world that reflect your goodness and grace and who you are. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So Mike is going to lower the curtains. As he does, we're going to give you guys just a couple moments as we do a couple songs. And in the just, just first few moments, you know, ask God, what is the weightiest thing in your life right now? Is it his glory? Is it understanding the gospel and his rescue of you? Or is it some other thing? Is it a worry about, you know, where your next meal is going to come from? Is it a worry about, you know, how you're going to make rent? Is it a worry? What is the weightiest thing in your life at this moment? Because I'm not saying those other things don't have weight. But I think it's important for us to identify what holds the most weight in our lives. And it should be God's glory and the hope that he brings because God is concerned about his glory. And then that we would be a people, as I said, who the words that we speak and the thoughts that we think would all come back to be gospel-centered, that there would be great joy and laughter and hope because of what the gospel does, because of what God has done in the gospel and the hope that he brings to us. Take a few moments, think about that, then sing with us and take communion. And let's worship God, step out into the world around us in ways that begin to reflect the great salvation that we have first received.